This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Italian American Podcast. The first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about and celebrate their brilliant heritage. We're your hosts, Anthony Fasano and Dolores Alfieri Taranto. We're first generation and third generation Italian Americans from the same small village outside of New York City. As writers and speakers, we've both spent years exploring Italian American identity. And through this podcast, we continue this exploration with you. In each episode, we talk to dynamic Italian Americans, from athletes to authors to entrepreneurs to find out how their heritage has influenced their success, their values, and their outlook on life. We do it with a lot of heart, a lot of smarts, and a lot of laughs. <laughs> As the saying goes, there are two types of people, those who are Italian and those who wish they were Italian. Whatever camp you're in, grab an espresso and get your hand gestures ready <laughs> for this episode of the Italian American Podcast. Welcome to episode 78, where we will be speaking about blood memory with trained neuroscientist, Dr. Christopher Fasano. Oh, not another Fasano. <laughs> oh, God help me. <laughs> one, one is enough for you. But So yes, listeners, you may have noticed that our guest today shares the same last name as our beloved co-host here, Anthony Fasano, and that is because he is actually his brother. That's right. And before we get into that, I want to welcome our new listeners. Even though we have 77 other episodes on our website, we do have new listeners to every episode, which we welcome. We're like one big happy Italian-American family here, so everyone's welcome aboard. You can go to our website at italianamericanexperience.com. Super easy to navigate the site and find all of our past episodes and all of the different, not only guests that we've had, but the many topics that we've covered because we do try to vary it up in the topics that we talk about. And just a reminder to subscribe to the podcast. You can do this in iTunes by going to our show page and just clicking on the subscribe button. Yeah, and also I just want to mention our new neighborhood, which is a private Facebook group that we created probably about a year and a half ago now or so, believe it or not already, which is which is crazy. But the reason we created this group is because you know, obviously Dolores and I love podcasts and I know you love podcasts because you listen to this podcast. But the thing about podcasts is it's great to hear all of these topics and all this, the memories and all these different things that can inspire you about your culture, but you don't really get to interact with the podcast per se, other than listening. So we created this group because what we like to do as Italian Americans is interact with other Italian Americans, especially other Italian Americans that are passionate about their heritage like we are. And we didn't really know what it was going to come of it when we started it. But I got to say, it's become a very, very kind of tight knit family. And we share recipes, we share memories, you know, someone goes out and they see something, they post it, someone goes to Italy to visit someone and they post it. We've had members that met in the group and then met in person. So it's really just been an amazing experience. And you could check it out at italianneighborhood.com. I think it'll really help you even further deepen your heritage by, by considering joining us. 
Yeah, absolutely. Recently, I've started digging around a little bit to trace some more of my ancestry. And I was getting frustrated and couldn't find kind of information. So I hopped into the group and just asked other people from Campania, from Avellino region, about their own experiences looking for their ancestors' records. And I got so much information on where to go and why there might be missing files. And one of the members even sent me, emailed me a whole manual on how to use this one site that he had put together to guide me. So beyond helpful. I mean, seriously, just jumping into the new neighborhood and asking one question kind of saved me weeks of research. So this is this is what we're trying to do and what we are doing. And it's also part of the reason that we do charge a small yearly fee because we want to make sure that anybody who comes into the group really wants to be there. And of course, charging the small fee helps us and is part of what has been helping us to keep the Italian American podcast going. Yeah, absolutely. It is helping us to keep it going because of course the show is free and there are production costs. That's been very helpful for us. But also just to add on to what Dolores said really is that there are a lot of Facebook groups out there, a lot of Italian American groups and, you know, they all have, you know, their place for different things. But with this group, I think part of because of maybe because of the subscription fee, it's more intimate. So, you know, we have roughly around 100, maybe more than 100 people in the group, which means we really know people in the group. We know about their families. We know where they're located. We can consider trying to arrange things or people can get together offline and call someone else. So I think that's been what's kept it really strong. And, you know, we're excited to continue to kind of grow it, kind of grow the family. And that was the whole reason that we kind of called it the new neighborhood, because like we've said in the past, the old Italian neighborhoods There aren't that many of them left, of course, at this point in time. So we decided that we wanted to create a similar feeling online. So just visit italianneighborhood.com for more information on how to join. Okay, so moving on, we have a great story segment today as well. We're going to introduce our guest, Dr. Fasano, in a second here. But our story segment is the first of a series that we are going to air throughout the year on saints and their corresponding saint days with Mallory Vaudois. So Mallory has been on the show before and her episode was so, so very popular and we've been wanting to get her back on for a while. It's just a matter of coordinating schedules. So what we're going to be doing is having her on periodically in the lead up to a certain saint day and she's going to come on to talk about the saint, their imagery in art, their history, why we pray to them, what our ancestors would have said about them, and how you can kind of incorporate different forms of worship and observance to do the same. So the first saint we start with in today's episode is Santa Lucia, of course, St. Lucy. So stick around for that later on in the show. All right. So now we're going to introduce our guest. And you know, because I'm not really that familiar with him, I'm going to let Dolores do the introduction. <laughs> Okay, Christopher Fasano is a PhD trained neuroscientist with a passion for promoting the positive effects of communication on brain development and mental health. After spending years researching how stressors affect brain development, Dr. Fasano has a unique perspective on the mental stress young children feel as they grow up. Along these lines, Chris created and hosts the Better Mental Health for Kids and Parents podcast. Looks like podcasting is a family business, huh, Ann? Uh, That's for sure, yeah. (laughs) 
where he discusses how mental health issues affect the brains of children, young and old, and how the adults in their lives can help affect the outcome. To listen to the show, you can visit BetterMentalHealthShow.com. The show is also available on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, we're linking to it in the show notes for this episode. So I'm really excited about this episode. This is also another topic that our listeners love to hear about. And it's the topic of blood memory or genetic memory, as it's called more scientifically. And of course, it's the idea that we are somehow born in our blood, in our DNA with the memories of our ancestors. Dr. Fasano and I really get into this in this episode and kind of explore the topic. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you describe it like that, Dolores, also, because one of the things happening for us here in our house is we're, because three kids isn't enough, we're getting a dog. And one yeah, of the- <laughs> I, which is insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but, but to this, to your point, one of the things I was looking into is like researching the different dogs, you know, like retrievers and water dogs and all this stuff, you know, I was reading about it and basically it's kind of like the dogs are born obviously like today here in the United States, but because of their bloodlines that they were, you know, used in Germany to be retrievers for fishermen, they just have this like amazing instinct and abilities to swim. Right. right. And so it's mm-hmm. the same idea, like, you know, like bulldogs, Believe it or not, bulldogs were used to like literally ram and like flip bulls like in Spain, like way back when. Oh, gosh, really? And so now like they have the whole body is built the way it is. The face is flat. A lot of their genetics goes back. I mean, obviously they're not used for that today, right? But it just made me think about a lot of the stuff that we talk about. Like, you know, you're born here, but for some reason you go back to Italy and you seem like you remember everything. Exactly. Dr. Fasano and I get into that in this episode. All right. So before we jump in here to blood memory, I do just want to recognize our sponsor for this episode. Remember, our show is free, as you know, and so our sponsors help to support that. So we ask you to please support them. And our, our sponsor is Mediaset Italia. Catch your favorite Italian shows on DirecTV, including all the newest drama, variety news, and entertainment from Mediaset Italia. Now you can get Mediaset Italia and four more Italian channels, including Rai Italia, with Italian Direct Package from DirecTV and enjoy all things Italia. Get Mediaset Italia a la carte for $10 per month plus taxes or Italian Direct Package for $20 per month plus taxes. Call 877-778-4794 today. That's 877-778-4794. World Direct is a a la carte service requires activation of a qualifying base package. Hardware available separately at an additional cost. New customer offers require equipment lease and credit approval. Other conditions apply. Call 1-877-778-4794 or visit att.com for full details. All right, now it's time for Blood Memory. Okay, so now we have Dr. Christopher Fasano. Christopher Fasano is a PhD trained neuroscientist with a passion for promoting the positive effects of communication on brain development and mental health. Welcome to the Italian American podcast, Dr. Fasano. Thank you so much, Dolores. It's good to be on the show. So our listeners might notice that you have the same last name as our lovable co-host, Anthony Fasano. And that is, of course, because the two of you are brothers. 
I do. I know that guy well. <laughs> yep, I know that guy well. And we have uh, we have a podcasting history together. That's right. And Dolores and I have a history together. I was going to say we're Dolores and I are now working together again. I'm trying to remember the last time we worked together. It might have been in we were in went to an improvisation. How do you say it, Dolores? Oh, imp- imp- improvisational. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, an improvisational <laughs> camp together oh in my gosh, high school. And junior we high, on, even, junior even high. longer. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and we, we worked together to put on a show, a play together. So this is our reboot. Wow. Uh, Many years next, later. Or, yeah, exactly. I so hope, yes, we go I back. I hope we're better public speakers, et cetera, Same. now. Than I, we hope were. So too. I hope so. We sound a lot more clear, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so longtime listeners will have also heard me mention my cousin is married to Anthony's brother and their son is my godson. So this this would be the the fine gentleman that my cousin is is married to. So, you know, we're like good Italians. It's all in the family, right? It's all in the family. I've known Dolores <laughs> a long time. And uh, this I, I this is a perfect thing for Dolores to do do uh, talking about her heritage that she's so proud of. So I'm happy to be a part of the show and to talk about this really cool subject, Dolores, that yeah. you want to want to talk about today. Yeah. It's really cool. yeah. So we're going to talk about what we call blood memory. I know it has a more formal name of genetic memory, but we, we call it on the show blood memory, the more you know popular term. And the reason I wanted to bring you on, Chris, is obviously because you have a you know long career in neuroscience and you're kind of known as the, the brain guy. And if I ever have questions about emotions or things like that that have to do, I know, with my brain, I, I can always shoot you a quick text and you'll actually have an answer that I can understand. <laughs> That's so funny, the brain guy. I know it's a lot of pressure. So it came to me that I would love to talk to you about blood memory. And I was saying to you before we got on mic, I'm like, I don't know why I didn't think about doing this sooner because our listeners love this topic. And I wrote a blog post about blood memory a while ago, which I'll link to in the show notes that was so popular. And then anytime we've just had a guest on who talks about it, we get letters from people. It really resonates with them. As someone who grew up in an Italian family with tradition and certain types of dinners, certain types of events, certain types of things, you want to believe that there's a scientific component to it. You want to believe that in your brain, as soon as you were born, you had the wiring to be an Italian or Italian-American. I think that's so cool when you think about it. And it's great in terms of uh, when you think of biology, like the propagation of your the species of your family to keep it going on and on and on through a lineage, you would hope that some of those traditions are ingrained in them. So even if they weren't really paying attention or keen to them when they were experiencing them, they have it in their blood to offer it to their children. So it makes a lot of sense when That's you really right. think about it. Yeah, no, you just said that so well. So before we jump in, let's step back and give the listeners a sense of what what is blood memory? When we talk about blood memory, what is that? To everybody out there, just realize that in the context of memory, anything with memory, dreaming, the brain, there's always it's always a little bit nebulous because very difficult to actually truly understand it, right? So it's always with a caveat of that. But uh, blood memory, otherwise known as genetic memory, for a long time, the dogma or the you know what had the tradition, what people have always thought was that you're born, your brain is a blank slate. Now it comes with the machinery to do the things that humans are supposed to do, and through experience. You refine those things and your brain wires in response to the experience. So, for example, if you know every Sunday you're eating meatballs every single Sunday, your brain wires and says, "Okay, eating meatballs is something that I like. It's good. It makes me feel a certain way. And so it develops a system to, you know, seek 
I'm using meatballs, you know, but I, it's the experience of the, of the I mean, but any I kind mean, of Italian meat, meat can be swapped. Course, Italian meatballs will leave a mark on your memory, no doubt. But the, the experience, the meatballs aren't alone. They come with the meal. They come with your family around the table. They come with your cousins. They come with laughter. They come with a feeling of feeling good. And your brain, like you, like yourself, wants to feel good. So it will make a reward and a memory of that. And it will say, this makes me feel good. You should seek this all the time. So that that used to be or is still a very one side where you're born a blank slate and you just acquire. The other side, which is the genetic memory component to neuroscience, is that you're actually born pre-wired with certain inclinations or certain things that you just do because you were given them by you know your parents. So you were born wired to enjoy meatballs or this experience. And as you then now experience it, your brain is able to handle it and reinforce it. It's always been tough really to test it. You know, like how are you going to really know that? And Dolores's post that you guys can check out, she mentions a study and there were some studies that have come out now that have actually shown some really interesting evidence to suggest that you're not really a blank slate. And in fact, you're actually coming pre-wired with certain things passed on to you by your family or your tradition. It's wild. It's so wild. And, <laughs> it really and, is. And, and one of the one of the things where people were hung up, and this is about as scientific as we'll get, is when we're born, we are given copies of genes from mom and from dad. And so genes are the instructions. That's what our cells use to express certain traits. So eye color is the one that most people talk about. It's probably the most discussed genetics topic amongst normal daily human life, right? Which eye color is it? Who has blue eyes? Who has green? So we get a copy of the eye color gene from mom and from dad, and it produces an eye color at random. And so scientists can track this so they can see what genes are passed on. Now, it's hard to know what genes are involved in, you know, recognizing the Italian-American culture or experience. That's kind of difficult. And you can look at certain aspects. But what the what people now, the scientists have found is that it's not the genes where they're seeing the changes. It's these little marks all over the genes that are being changed. And what those marks do is it controls how much of certain genes turn on or turn off. So let me give you like a real world example. This is really fascinating. There is new research that suggests that Holocaust survivors actually have the wiring and the genetic marks that will allow them to endure that sort of experience again. So you have you have wow. people that were in the Holocaust. They have grandchildren and children and, and their lineage. When they looked at these these children, they found that they have these really lower levels of these hormones, these post-traumatic stress hormones, it, basically what they're doing is they're setting these grandchildren up to survive a starvation or a Holocaust-like Get event. out. Yeah. It's really, really crazy. And, and they were able to show that, you know, survivors have low levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone that helps the body return to normal. So it's, it, it, it's, and these are survivors, but what they've done, so survivors get messed up in terms of stress. You can imagine what they've gone through, but they pass on to their offspring and grandchildren, the ability to tolerate it better than they did. And they're showing that now, and they're not showing that there's a difference in the gene number. They're showing that there are these marks that are transmitted and they're all over the grandchildren's genes that might help them survive a long bout of hunger or a long bout of thirst. So they have all of this mechanisms too. So you would think they have actually a genetic advantage now over us because if God forbid there was a severe 
problem, they would win because they wow. have the marks passed. Yeah. How crazy is and that? And that's right? just in like one or two generations. I mean, that's kind of like an instant genetic, yeah, I don't exactly. want to say mutation, but what would, what's the word you would use? Change, impact? Yeah, impact. It's a penetrance. Impact is a good is a good word. It's, it, you know what, Dolores? Like it's simpler in like the monarch butterflies. They migrate. They migrate from north to south when it's cold, and they do that one generation. And then on the way back, the round trip, it takes three generations to get back. So think about that. Those butterflies coming back every time. It's their first time. How the heck do they know the? How do they know where to go? They've never done it before in their life, but somehow they're born with directions pre-printed because they know their parents have to give them the ability to keep the cycle of life going. So there's now a lot of evidence that shows that memory or knowledge is given to you based off of the experience of the parent. Pretty wild. Yeah, I'm like taking this all in. So, okay, that is incredible. I mean, I get what you're saying, especially with the butterflies in the sense of they just have this instinct they know how to do this thing that generations before them have done, even though it's the first time they're doing it. Exactly. It's the first time they've ever, they were, they're born on the journey back. Right. And now they're like, you know, they're in North Carolina and they're like, all right, well, I got to get to Canada. So, all right. And they just go and they, they just know how to go. And, and the, I think one of the things that's interesting, we can bring it back to like Italian American experience is that one of the arguments is that, look, Everything we're talking about involves survival, right? We talked yeah. about the Holocaust. It's a survival. That a study you referenced was involved in fear, right? So that more fear, afraid of life, survival. Monarch butterflies, survival. Anything that keeps the species alive must be passed on. Now, we can argue that meatballs keep me alive for sure. Like if I, if someone tomorrow <laughs> is taking away my meatballs, I, you know, it'd be a challenge to my life. But I, you see where I'm going with that. I People do. might say like, well, it doesn't affect your life. So how do we know those things? But I don't agree with that. I think that meatballs, we keep coming back to this, but it's, we'll just run with it. Meatballs are such a huge part of my life, right? Like, uh, as a, as I've a seen human, you eat them. You love oh, them. Oh man, I take them down. I don't, even, <laughs> I don't even wait for them to make the plate. I, go I, I always make fun of Anthony on the show because I always say like, "You Fasano boys, my gosh, you guys can eat, and you're all like in this the best shape." I don't know where you put the food. Go ahead. Uh, I don't know where I put it, but it goes. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm for all the Italian Americans out there. I never waited. I always opened up the pot and went in first, and I was going <laughs> in to get meatballs out. I guess what I'm saying is, to me, my Italian experience my Italian American culture and how I grew up was my life. Like right. it's life to me. So you can make I can make an argument back that if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be who I am. So of course I expect some sort of genetic marks that allow me to live more Italian, if you will, than other people. Right, right. So in the blog post that I mentioned, my premise is I'm exploring the question of if our reverence for the family could possibly be genetic and could possibly be a result of blood memory. And where I'm going with that is because in Southern Italy, now just to kind of jump back to what you were saying about trauma and survival, right? Making these impacts. So this is totally just Dolores exploring an idea. I don't know the science. I mean, aside from what I read, right? And, uh, you know, like my limited understanding, let's put it that way. But in Southern Italy, the short version is Southern Italians were doing pretty well for a while. And then there was a attempt at unification that turned things really bad. And there were years of extreme hardship, 
starvation, suffering, and yep. right, and exploitation. So we really learned to stay together within our families because if someone found out that you had some land that you were growing food on, you would then be taxed on that land, for instance, and be even in more dire straits. So we really just kept to our families and kept to ourselves. That got me thinking in the terms in terms of blood memory. Is that still with us? Well, I mean, Dolores, it's linked to survival there, right? Like you just perfectly linked it to survival. I mean, during that time, they were in a tough, rough time and uh, facing, you know, death. I'm using air quotes, you know, sure, literal and a tough, tough times. And what they did was they came together and they recognized that when they were together, they felt better and they could they could weather it better. And there's no reason to think that that couldn't be and isn't passed through the same way the information of these Holocaust survivors mark up genes for their offspring and their generations below them, just in case something like that were to happen to them. Now, you know, again, we don't, we'll never really know, but genetic memory definitively, scientists would hate that I use definitively, <laughs> but uh, genetic memory has a lot of strong evidence now. And so I would have, if you, if we would have talked, it's so interesting, if we would have talked about this a, a little bit ago, I might have said, Dolores, how do you know that? Since you've been born, you've been seeing religious artifacts in your home and smelling garlic and oil. How do you know the brain could just have wired you to 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 think that, right? Right, like from growing up, my childhood being surrounded by it. Right, like you you uh, you know you know that smell. You know Sundays. You know those uh, rituals, and so your brain wired to you know reinforce those things. And I think that that does happen, but I don't think that. I personally don't think that we are a blank slate, completely void of any sort of genetic influence of tradition and culture. I, I, I just don't think that. I think the brain is a lot smarter than that, and I think it's it's passed through, and so it now puts more pressure on the younger generations – Myself, you, maybe, you know, maybe uh, Teresa, uh, you know, my wife's sister is like 10 years younger to keep the traditions alive because if it breaks, right, if it breaks somewhere, maybe they don't get reinforced genetically and eventually it, it, it just breaks out of the family. So you have to keep it going to really keep keep the genes because remember, it'll change. You know, if all of a sudden your family stops over the next couple generations, those marks could go away. You can lose that memory. I was going to ask you about that. Can it be reversed, let's say, but maybe it's not reversed so much as it atrophies. It's exactly what it does. So like the brain is just opportunistic. It's going to like move towards what's going on. And if it's if it's not having meatballs anymore, it's going to move on to, you know, something else, because now it has to kind of keep that reward going. And it's not rewarded anymore when no one's having meatballs on Sunday. What a terrible what a terrible day when there's no meatballs on Sunday. <laughs> Okay, so just as an example, your wife, Antonella, you guys have Luca, my godson, your son. So Luca, in this in this blood memory scenario, this genetic memory scenario, I grew up with Antonella. Okay, so I'll use her as an example to make it easier. I know that she's always been a very sensitive, close to her family type of person, right? Her, she's been yes. very, very connected to her, her parents, her aunts, uncles, everybody. That's where she feels safest. I, of course, feel the same way. So when she has Luca, is Luca in this scenario theoretically born with that same imprint? 
so according to the genetic memory data, we would say that Luca is going to be born with certain genes that are ready and probably over ready to experience certain traditions. So if we're just like, let's stick with the meatball thing. If there's there's genes that control taste, right, that are our ability to like certain foods, smell, to smell certain things that are pleasing to us, that's all controlled by our genetic information. It's not a coincidence that we like the smell of garlic. I think what happens is you know, Antonella and I both have very strong genetic backgrounds and experiences in the Italian American culture and experience. And when our son is born, genetic memory would say his genes are going to be marked to to have an enhanced experience of that experience. I'm using the same word, but right. he's going to have an enhanced ability to handle the experience. And but he's going to be able to eat twice as much garlic. Right. He's going to be a super <laughs> Italian. Right. He's going to have exactly. He's going to yeah. be a super Italian if and he. We, we're, we're conferring this advantage on him, and now it's up to him to take it to the next – now take it to the next step and keep it going, going, going. And then when he has children, he'll pass it on to them, and then he'll get stronger and stronger and stronger. But like we said, the strength only is as strong as the reinforcement by experience. So if he just all of a sudden is like, yeah, I don't want to have meatballs anymore. I don't want to hang out with my – you know, like then then it will wane over time, and the offspring will, will – in the future generations really won't care so much about – Meatball. So yes. Yeah, so we, by by but by this what it says, he should come pre-wired to enjoy certain things about the Italian experience. Very interesting. And I mean, I I wonder if that's why so many of us still feel so closely identified as Italian American. You know, you almost think at this stage in our assimilation, we would we would not even think about our ethnic identity anymore. And of course, there's. There's a lot of us that don't, but there's an as this show, you know, has shown us, there's an overwhelming majority of Italian Americans who still feel very connected to their to their heritage. And if they have lost that connection, there's something in them, right, that brings yep. them to a yep. show like this because they yep. they feel like they're missing something. And they also feel we as Italian Americans or as any you can relate it to other cultures as well. But in, in the Italian American culture, we gravitate more towards Italian Americans. We like to be around them. We, we feel do. like we know them. We feel like we can share because because the because we know what that's like. We we have these genes probably that are marked to say you'll do better if you hang out with these people, mm. right? Like you'll, you're going to survive. If you can get a team of Italian Americans on your side, you're going to do better because that's how you're wired to be. And so that's why we, you know, when we have parades or festivals and stuff, we feel good because it's like family times a million. Now you have like, you, you're around all of your, we say we're with all of our people. It's true. Like you're, yeah. you're genetically similar in your marks. So your brain knows that and you ultimately feel more comfortable when you're around your own because you're genetically sharing information, which is really cool. You know, there's that saying, blood recognizes blood. And yeah. I, I don't know, am I getting too poetic or is it something along those lines? No, I think it's fair to make the brain po like poetry because I think the brain and that that process is so beautiful how how it has to be able to transmit things on that kind of detail. Like, you know, it, it recognizes what's so important in humans and it wants to make sure you'll always have that. Not only you, but your offspring and your generations forever down the road are always going to have the great things that you had. And, it, and it, you know where it gives me kind of cool hope, Dolores? You know, my wife's mother passed, I'm sure, you know, I don't know if you talked about it, but, but like she was such an influential point in her life. And there's a break there now in, 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 in how, right. So now it'll be really interesting how 
that affects my wife's brain, right? It'll affect us. And it could do it in a good way in that it, it pushes you further now. You know, the brain loses that input. All of a sudden, it's like, well, wait a minute. Where did that go? Um, okay, we have to compensate for this now. We really got to kick this into gear. And it sometimes can cause a positive and push it down to Luca in a strong – our son in a stronger way at a comp to make sure you don't lose it, you know, because that's always a fear in the Italian-American ex- experience and culture and familiar. When, when people are gone or they leave, do, is it still going to be propagated? And this is where the hope and faith and the memory component – you just hope it's there because as long as it's there, it should survive and it should always be passed down. And I don't know if I'm getting too technical here, but we're talking about this has to be passed down when they're in the womb. So so almost like Luca has what he's going to have. Or are you saying we can almost pick it up just being around each other? Well, I so I think that so Luca has it now, but. He has to then use these super meatball genes that he was given. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll wane and it won't confer him any sort of advantage because there's nothing to advance him on. So he already has it pre-wired, but it, it gets enhanced with his experience now. And now, you know, think about me and you. We've, we have a certain level of those marks. Now, Luca's going to have maybe more marks because we've, he's, he's got mine. He's got my parents. He's got my grandparents. They're all been passed and strengthened and strengthened. So technically, every offspring, as long as you keep – if you're, I'm saying this is so weird. If you're keeping it in the Italian American lineage, right? That assumes you're marrying an Italian American and you have that on both sides, and it gets stronger and stronger. Luca should be super Italian American by his genetics, so he should get it right away. You know, he should he should love meatballs instantly. He should love, you know, he should have, uh, you know, trip and all these things. He should he should want all that stuff. No he problem. Kind of does. And he kind of does. Yeah, he does. He does. I remember like, him being so little and just shoving like sausage in his mouth. I'm like, this kid's like amazing. And so someone can say, Chris, like, come on, your kid is around Italian culture, and that's where he gets it from. And yeah, of course, but. If you took a child, a different background, as soon as they were born and you put them in my family, they would respond differently. I would guarantee that they would respond differently. And obviously we can't do that test, right? We can't take a child after it's born and transplant them and to grow up in a home of the Irish American to see how how it differs. But it would be a pretty funny experiment if the kid was always like, you know what? Why can't we have meatballs? We're always That's having so shepherd's true. pie. I really <laughs> I, I want some meatballs over here. And that would really? be the proof that we need. That would You're be the right. Proof that like what a child kind of placed in a different ethnic setting, you know, that that would be a great way of knowing is it is it innate, but, you know, in that in the blog post. And I think about this a lot. I totally get the idea that you're you're born a blank slate and then you pick it up, except I talk about for me personally, Catholicism and Catholic imagery, even more so, way more so than the doctrine. Right. It's the images the paintings, the kind of trinkets and statues and rosary beads that we grew up with. I remember being very, very little. And that imagery resonated with me on a very deep level, even before I understood it. So I kind of find it hard, not hard, but a little difficult to believe I was taught that, right? Nobody nobody kind of sat around teaching like, me. Like, this is the Madonna. Yeah, like, you know. yeah, you know my family. Like, nobody was doing that. <laughs> it was like, figure it out for yourself, kid. You know, we're here if you need something. But, 
But that makes sense, Dolores, because think about it. Think about the Italians and, and the religion. To them, it was life. When they had nothing and they were dying, you look to God. You look to your faith and you look to religion to bring you through. So it's part of survival for the Italian-Americans. It really is. Like you ask any old school Italian, even Italian-Americans, they'll tell you, like, you believe in God. Whatever is going on in your life, God has an answer. And if you have faith, he'll make it okay. You know, like my grandmother still says this. 91, she still says this. So you just have to have faith in God. And that keeps her alive. You right. can make that argument. So because of that, I'm sure the brain recognized that and marked your brain a little bit to recognize the faith so that if it confers an advantage to you and you, you know, it will. So you were born like looking at the rosary beads hanging there and you were like, nah, you were okay with that. You know, you were like, yeah, okay, that's right. That's what I mean. I, I, I know that I felt that way. It made me feel safe. Just yes. instantly. Like, I, I don't know, you know, instantly might not be the accurate word, but you get what I'm getting at here. No, but it is safe, right? It, it gives you a sense of like, you're not going to die. I'm being very extreme, but that's, that's what I'm, that's what it means. Like here you'll live and you'll live good. You'll live well here. And all of these things are normal to you. If you grew up one day, like, you know, if you were two or three and you all of a sudden your mom just cleaned house and she went all like modern and got rid of all this stuff, you would be like, what the heck? You would be uncomfortable. And not because it's weird, because your, your brain is like, wait, what? You know, like I needed those things. Yeah. And when you said that, I thought about the first thing I thought was and I would probably at some point later in life circle back to being someone who buys prayer cards on the reg <laughs> just to have them around because, you know, I, <laughs> it would probably come back around because I would feel like we something's missing. Yes, exactly. Right. And it's hard. That's why it's hard. Actually, it's an interesting dilemma that maybe younger children in the waning days of like where there's religion, but they come up in a family and a culture like the Italian-Americans that's so heavy on on religion. And you almost feel all, even if you truly – and I, I struggle with this, right? Because Dolores knows my history in religion. Like I struggled with it and I, I doubt it and I, you know. Yeah. But as, as an Italian-American, I feel terrible. Right? I feel terrible. <laughs> you feel guilty. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm doing the worst thing possible. And like yeah. why do I feel that way? Probably because my brain has been like, is, is just ready for me to experience that religion telling me like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. No, that's a great way to put it. So – what I'm picking up here, if I can just kind of give a little, a little nugget, summary. yeah, back to the exactly back to the listeners is let's put it this way. If you don't have children yet, you can possibly give them a deep sense and connection to their heritage if you currently have one yourself. And then yes. when you have that child, it is incumbent upon you to continuously reinforce that. Yes. If you don't want them to lose it. So we actually have some control kind of more or less over this. You're right. This big thing that Italian-Americans fear so often, which is that all the traditions will be lost and this kind of identification with your heritage will be lost. Did I get right. that right? Yes, it's exactly right. I like that. Uh, you know, the responsibility you have is not only to, you know, is to is to you you've created this child with these marks that are ready and really ready to go for meatballs. And your responsibility is to make them. So if you don't know how to make meatballs out there by now, you better start learning so we can make sure the meatball consumption right. and production continues throughout the throughout the lineage. Wonderful. So what about somebody like me who married somebody who's half Sicilian and half other things? Am I in trouble? Well, so they'll get the half Sicilian part, right? They'll be there. And again, like, Dolores, you know, there's, 
there's a lot of um, you know, but it's true. There's a lot of uh, similarities amongst cultures, so you'll get it there. You know, lastly on this topic, and then I, I kind of want you to talk a little bit about your own show because I actually have a bunch of questions for what you're doing in that realm as it pertains kind of to blood memory, but but to to families and what's happening to families these days. Of course, La Familia, another huge theme in in our culture in addition to meatballs. <laughs> so um, <laughs> <laughs> lastly, you know, we hear from a lot of people who go to Italy for the first time and they go to their ancestral towns and it's always a, a very moving experience. I wonder if there's a connection to genetic memory in that experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that there is. And, and I think it goes along to along with this idea of feeling better when you're with your family in a very general way. And so I think I think you get a combination of a, a bunch of things. I think you get, as a human being, you're only a product of the generations before you, right? And people have this really, I mean, people aren't interested in a lot of things. They're really so true, right? People are interested in certain things, but not a lot of things. But everyone is interested in where they came from, right? I mean, hence the 23andMe and all these DNA tests exactly, that are out now. yeah. Because people, human beings just want to know where they came from because it's it's, an, it's innate in us to know our lineage and where we came from and what we'll, what we'll make. So I think you get both. I think you get the genetic memory of your family and being around and being close and, you know, being expanding that family and having more people that you can call family that, that your brain is already wired for. Then I think you get this. These are the people that I'm came from. I think you get, I think you get that. And I think the combination creates this incredible uh, experience for the brain. That's just like, Whoa, this is like ultimate this is like the ultimate situation right now, right? I'm supposed to be with these people and these are the people that made me. If without them, I wouldn't be here in some way. And so you have this really human moment. And I think that it's really cool. I know Aunt Anthony did this. We went, I met yeah, some of my- I was gonna bring that could, up. Because mm -hmm. only Anthony would be able to trace and get that <laughs> kind of finite detail. And you know he did that. And I remember being there and going there and sitting with them at this big table. And I remember just looking- at it. And I, again, I didn't do anything in the setup. I, I just kind of went there. So I was a little removed and I sat at the table and I had this inc really incredible feeling like, okay, like I'm supposed to be at this table, you know, like uh, they don't know me at all. I've never met them before in my life, uh, but I'm supposed to be here and it's perfectly normal. And I, and I think that you would be, it'd be hard missed to think that that something of that wasn't genetic. Mm, well and passed said. on, you know? Right. And it's the same idea, sangue, riconosce sangue, blood recognizes yep. blood, you yes. know? And I've told stories on the show before about, I don't see my cousins in Italy often and we never grew up together. But when we say goodbye, when I do go to Italy and we say goodbye, it's very emotional. That, right? It is, right? It's emotional. It's and they're not, they're not, it's not because, I mean, to be honest, do I miss them? It's not like they're going to be like missing you daily. Yeah, thinking, exactly. Oh. Yeah, you're used to it. We, we, we've never lived next to each other. I don't come back to New York and expect them to be a part of my everyday life. But there's just you feel it deep. It's like it's in your heart and like your blood that you are being separated from your DNA, your blood. Right. You know, you're not supposed to be leaving this person. There's something about that, that your brain is like, wait a minute, this isn't good. Like, why are you leaving? You just got here. Yeah. You just found them. Or like, these are your, and wait a minute, why are you going again? It's really, 
you know, it's, you bring this up. It's funny. So Antonella's family, all they're all in Italy from the same town. They all live there. All of her, you know, 20, however many cousins. And they have this group text now on this WhatsApp. A lot of them live within the same apartment complex. Right. So they're seeing each other every every hour, all day, every single day. And all they do is is text each other all day long, all of them, all day. They don't stop. They just talk, it. and they're and there's like thirty different conversations, and they like they're like they're on the couch together. And I think it reinforces this concept where their family is what they know. It like you know like they're not hanging out with their friends. They're with their family, right. and and that's that's what the brain wants. It prefers that because it's the most safe and it's the most viable when it's around its own blood because they share a similar genetic markup. And it's just really extreme in Italy when they live like that. You know, we we live in America. You, you have cousins. I have cousins. And I, I would see them every Sunday. It wasn't as dramatic, but it was the same concept. You know, right. you would always go get together. And every time we all came together, it was nuts and crazy and loud and whatever and dramatic at a lot of times. But you love the drama. Like, that's where you feel comfortable. It's so true. Yeah, that, you know? that's what feels normal. And when right. and if you have like a party or or people are over and it's like quiet and everyone's down, you're like, this is abnormal and it scares yeah, this me. This is uncomfortable. It's I uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't like yeah. this. This is not right. right. It's not normal. Because, because you're not wired. Your brain came with certain instructions that told you like boisterous, loud, and, you know, smells are, are what's supposed to be. And all of a sudden now it's quiet and your brain is like, this isn't, this isn't what we're supposed to be happening. You know, I think also, like we said, that's why death in the family hurt that experience. Cause it, it for a while, it can make the, uh, the family a little more somber. And so the brain is confused, right? It doesn't know what's happening. It's saying, why am I with the same people? But I don't have the same feeling, right? You just have to hope that your genetic marks will push you through those times and then continue it down the road even though you were faced with some sort of insult to it, it just it can keep going because it's in your blood to keep going. You sure, know? sure. And, you know, we've both experienced this very closely. I do think there is a part of you that wants to take up that because you feel like you've lost so much of it that now it's your turn to really make sure it keeps going, whatever that it is. Right. You know, whether it's recipes whether it's the tradition of keeping the family together with dinner every Sunday, whatever it is, especially when someone you, you lose someone. That's why so many people come to the show. I feel like they their parents will pass away or their grandparents will pass away and they realize this person who was holding the torch is gone. Right. Right. And they're scared of losing it. Right. And you know what? It will never be the same. Yeah. However, however, if the if what we're talking about is correct. It won't be the same, but it should always be there. And so therefore, you just have to now do it differently. And like I know Dolores, your family has certain traditions. Dolores, I'm sure you've talked about it. You know, she gets together with her family every Monday night. They they come over for dinner. And since, you know, your your father and since you how long you've been doing that, Dolores, how long you've been having your family oh my together? Gosh. I mean, yeah, over 25 years, 27 years. And yeah. you lost your father and you continue to do this. Right. And, you know, like I'm I'm sure I know that when you first started it again, it wasn't the same. It didn't feel right. Definitely no, not painful. without Dolores' dad mm -hmm. at the table. It's a very different table. But 
but you 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 still do it now and you're glad you do and it's still the same right but it's it's going to be different and i think sure. your family has such strong genetics and strong background there it's it would never you would never let that happen right you would never let that stop and i think that i would like to think that in italian americans that would be the case for most perfect and i i, I want to dovetail a little bit from there so you know you're you're doing shows now and you're you're focusing now on mental health as it pertains to the brain um or as the brain pertains to mental health and and children. And we, we're talking a lot, obviously, through an Italian-American lens about how important family is and how important traditions are and how, and how there's a very good chance that we are basically genetically wired to be with our families. You know, that, that ongoing joke that, like, Italian Italians don't have friends. They have cousins, right? Like, your yeah, cousins exactly. are your yeah, friends. That's funny. That's funny. And then even, like, your good family friends are your cousins. You know, they become your your, your family. In this day and age, though, as kind of the family unit itself is being demolished and families are separated for various reasons, different than, you know, what our ancestors experienced. And we don't really live in communities anymore. We're isolated. How is this affecting the mental health of children and, you know, society in general? If we think about it through our lens, for instance, we grew up in this in such tight-knit families. We were surrounded by our cultures. We we grew up so mentally adjusted and strong because we had that. So what happens nowadays when that's gone? So thanks for, for talking about the show. Like it's, for me, it's something that's, as a, as a parent, as a neuroscientist, as a parent, just as a human being, what's happening right now with the children and in mental health is just it's it's terrible. I mean, the statistics on it are awful. Uh, two to I mean, there are uh, one in eight children, I think it is, like in the ages of two to eight, or have would have a diagnosable mental disorder. I mean, they're the, the younger and younger and younger, and then when these kids get to um, high school, it really manifests. And once I go to college now, the suicide rates and depression rates are so high. And I think what a lot of it comes back to is we're just not, we don't, children aren't raised the same anymore. They're not in the same type of environment. We grew up in an environment that was familial oriented and, and, and where communication only occurred through, through word, like, you know, like I got yelled at or like someone was talking to me, that's it. I wasn't getting a text message and I wasn't getting it anywhere else. And so we were raised in a very strong foundation of family and respect. And that was reinforced through conversation and communication, maybe not in the way, you know, you think about a sit down one on one, but you learn through speech. Now, kids aren't raised that way anymore. Uh, kids are what I say over sanitized, meaning we make it everything so perfect for them and so comfortable for them. And so out of out of our own anxieties and fears, and they have phones and they have these, they don't commute, they don't have as good a communication. They don't learn how to interact. They don't learn how to, how to read people. And all of a sudden they like become young adults. IQ. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When they get to be young adults and they all, cause suffering in this world is inevitable. What happens is if we're so, they're so comfortable, we're setting them up for mass failure because when they go out on their own, they're not going to have any ability to self-regulate their own emotions because they've always had it done for them. In the Italian-American experience, I'm an Italian boy, right? So I was very coddled and everything was taken care of for me. But in my family, my parents always put a premium on communication, right? They always said to me, like, you know, we're going to talk this out. Like, everyone's going to talk here. We're not, we're not a family that doesn't talk. And that always uh, gave me the ability to be able to communicate fairly well. 
Nowadays, it doesn't really happen. Both parents are working. Everybody's very busy. There's a lot of phones and movies. And it's a lot easier just to let your kid just chill. Right. And, you know, you're going to feed you them. You're going <laughs> to you're, you're gonna feed them. You're going to make them safe. And you're going to do that as long as you can. And then here you go, buddy. You were going to save for college and you're all. But it doesn't work that way, right? Because children need to be talked and spoken to. They need to understand communication. They need to understand that it's okay if they ask, you know, or they say, I'm not feeling so great, or I'm feeling this way. Can we talk about it? So the show is that. So we're just, it's a 50, it's like a 15 minute, 15 to 20 minute show. Every week there's a little a new topic. I'm trying to stay current in mental health. And we talk about, you know, anxiety, how it affects children, what you can do to address it. What can you do? What can you do to recognize it? What are some tools? Uh, how can we help them better in school? So It'll be neuroscience a little bit, but it'll mostly be from the perspective of a parent and a human that's just concerned about having clear-minded humans as we move forward. It's great work. I've been thinking a lot about this as I'm working on another book, and a lot of it is kind of centered on what you're talking about. I'm not really necessarily focused on kids. I'm focused on adults, but as I write and I and I research and I read and I'm kind of putting on paper all the things that I believe and have learned through life, but also through talking to guest after guest for, you know, some three years now on this show is it's amazing to me how we have as a society thought that everything was just going to be fine if we ripped families, the family structure apart and stopped and kind of just ripped down all tradition. It, it's so innate in who we are and we so need it to feel connected and to have a, a healthy sense of belonging and self, I just, it freaks me out, honestly, to look around at the society we're in today. And I wonder, like, I don't know, do you have, you have hope that like we can raise healthy kids? And I do, I do have hope. And people ask me that because, you know, some people will call, will say like, you know, man, like it's what you're presenting seems so like so dim. And what I say to them is I'm presented that way to make everybody aware it's a problem, right? Like it's one of those things where it's like, I'm doing this. I call it in my first episode, like it's an intervention. Like everybody out there needs to know that we are all suffering. No one is unique, right? And so like, that's okay. The life is like an endless hailstorm. You just gotta, you know, you're hoping it, you get your umbrella works, but inevitably doesn't, right? So your family is a safety net. That's how I view it. Like my Italian family and the culture is like a safety net to my son. In other words, I'm going to do, we're going to do our best to raise him with a bunch of tools to make him be mentally healthy, physically healthy, whatever successful. But if that all doesn't work out and he doesn't listen to anything we do, at least he can fall back on his family structure because he'll always feel like he belongs to something bigger than himself. Everything could go wrong for him, but he could always come to back to his family. And so I think that's where it's important. If you don't have a family structure or a family tradition and you you plan to raise children, that's okay. But just realize that they're going to struggle or possibly be alone one day. And what are they going to have? What are they going to have? And that's the real importance, I think, of the family structure. It provides them with a fallback. Like you always have these people here. Like I know that I always have Dolores and their family. My wife and I, we know that. Like we just know that. Like the like when this ha I called Dol um, Dolores's brother for advice, financial advice once, and I don't ever talk to her brother for that kind of thing. But I knew I could call him at any time, and and he wouldn't be like, you know, Chris just calls me when he needs me. It would never be that. Wow. It would just be Chris called. You know, if he needs something, he'll call me back because. Because I know we we know we have that, and that's I right. and I hope, like you're saying, that's why the family structure needs to needs to survive. Because no one can do it by themselves; you just can't. 
it doesn't work that way. No way. I mean, it's insane. And what and what is the point of of living? I mean, some of our best times. Absolutely. And it's not fun. Exactly. I mean, That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. How many nights of your summers growing up would have been boring as hell if you didn't have like loud Italian people <laughs> in the backyard? You know what I mean? Like, it's just yep. like, it's, it's just who we are. It's, it's better when there's people around. Like when I have some good news, I want to share it with my family. Like, you know, like it's just how we, it's who we are. And Absolutely. If a, if a kid can't feel like Luca says it to me all the time, daddy, I want to hang out with my cousins. I haven't seen my cousins in a while. Oh, Can we so go see cute. my cousins? And that makes me smile because like, it makes me sad because we live two hours away, but it makes me smile because I remember that feeling. Yeah. I remember going on Sundays and looking forward to hanging out with my cousins, showing them my new stuff. Like, you know, like I remember that. And I'm so glad he feels that way because that means we've done our job of, of propagating that, that thing. So. And you guys live two hours away, but you also do you're, – you're down here a lot. Yeah, there, we're there a lot. Yeah, you do a great job of keeping him connected. The Italians know, like, you know, I'm not there every Sunday, which gives me a little – gives me raised eyebrows, you know, from the family. <laughs> but I'm there. I'm there a lot. And I like – we like to be there as much as possible because – especially my wife nowadays too, you know, without her mom, we want to be around our family. It helps. It helps to, uh, to feel that your brain wants to, you know, sure. she's already feeling the impact of losing her mother just a few years ago and all the changes that that brings. She feels better when she's around us and you can't blame her for that. I mean, you know, you know me, I mean, I agree with that 100 yeah. percent. You know, people might say she might say, like, I don't, though, you know, it sometimes it makes me feel really sad. And I say, you're right. It probably does. But inside your brain, in your body, innate, you feel more comfortable. It might it might it might sure. manifest right, right now as being sad. But your brain wants that. It really wants you to be there. And it really wants everyone to be around the same table and having a good time because it's how it does the best. And now the brain has to reconvince you that it's okay to feel good around the table again. And that's the hardest part when you lose somebody to, to give in and say like, okay, my dad is not here, but the rest of my family is. And now we're going to remember him instead that's of right. like just missing that he's gone. And as I always tell her, I promise it gets better. It never goes away, but it gets better. And, you know, it's just a game of time. Just enough. You have to have enough times. Yeah. It really stinks, but it's so true that the only thing that really is going to work is time. And, and luckily in the Italian American world, we also have an incredible family support that's extended. That's, that's what's great about the Italians coming together is that they're there for everyone and all, for no matter what. And there, there's always going to be someone there that you can fall back on. And I couldn't imagine going through my life without having that there. Right. Think about that. That's weird. Like, what would you have done? I don't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be me. I mean, I, no, I, I you know, you arguably might not have been alive. Seriously. I'm not, not you in general, but someone could say like, if I didn't have my family and I got really dark, like, God forbid, exactly. like what would I have done? Exactly. You know, which you think about your family in the darkest times. You do. And and also, I just remember being younger and having this sense that I really could do anything. And that that was a direct result of knowing I had this foundation because you can take that kind of risk when you know, you know, like, no matter what, I'm never going to starve. I'm never going to be homeless because right. I have my family. So you can kind of, you know, of course you want to make good decisions and smart decisions, but you know what I'm saying? You feel supported, you know, like this net you keep talking about. And I, it breaks my heart to think that more and more we're raising children in an environment where they lack that, you know, and then we expect them to be healthy and well-adjusted. People, people who know me, Dolores knows me, like I have these like 
you know, these things that like really, really bother, like as they would, like a scientist, like things that really bother me. And like, I don't judge anyone's parents, but from my, from me and my family, the dinner table is always something of mine that I will never forget that experience. The dinner table, my father and my mother made that a, like a central part of my growing up. You always come to the dinner table. I don't care if you're eating or not, you sit there and you're going to be with your family and you're going to pay attention. And so with, with Luca, no matter how old he gets, no matter how many devices he's using, when he's at that dinner table, he's going to sit at that dinner table with it and he's going to sit there and he's going to participate in the meal because like, there's got to be something that you preserve. There has to be. And you know, like eating around, eating around around the table is as Italian as it gets. And for me and for my wife, like I want to make sure if he abandons all other traditions, when he has children, he's going to say to his kids, we're all eating together and we're all going to sit around this table because that is something that's really core to how I feel growing up as an Italian. You got to eat together. Otherwise, what's the point, right? Uh, even when he sits at the island by himself and me and my wife will sit at the table, we'll look at him and be like, no, nah, man, you got to come over here. Like, what are you doing over there? We don't we, even though you're right there, like we have to eat on top of each other. Like, this, this is how we eat. Like, you know, we don't yeah, do and, any of that. And, you know. Guest after guest on this show, inevitably, every single guest talks about Sunday dinner. Every guest. It's insane. Without fail. I hope so. I mean, man, like it's 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 what defines you as the Italian-American. Really. It really it really isn't. You know, I was just giving a talk in Long Island over the weekend and somebody asked me that question. What have you learned? You know, what's what's one kind of big theme that you've learned in interview after interview? And I said, Sunday dinner. And everything that that represents, which, of course, always brings us back to family and tradition. And those are the things that matter to us. And, you know, I am pretty much dedicated my life and at this point my career to to making sure that not only we Italian-Americans don't forget that. The second book I'm writing right now is I want to give this to the wider world, the wider society. I think it's a gift we have to offer in really scary times. Here are the things that matter. I agree. I totally agree because you're going to we're going to disagree on a lot of things. And, you know, we probably do. I'm not speaking just about me and Dolores. I'm speaking in general. And but what we won't what where you know where we'll disagree around the table on Sunday. And like and I know I know that could be like, yeah, but you don't want to like it's your family. Yeah. But you know what? It doesn't matter because what Sunday dinner does is it allows me to always know my family will be somewhere that I'm going to see them. Right. It's like an inevitable thing. And everything could be crazy and your life could be whatever. And maybe I get an argument with my brother. I get an argument with my cousin. It happens all the time, but I know I'm going to see them and it forces me to be with my family. It doesn't give me the option. And that's important. Like, you know, it's really important to have a place you can always go. Like if I'm, if I'm downstate where Dolores lives, where my family's from, and I'm there on a Sunday, I could promise you I'm eating meatballs somewhere. I could promise you I'm having pasta somewhere. I'll find a Sunday dinner, no problem. And I could have multiple, actually, if I yeah. want to. I probably, <laughs> I probably would. But like because and, and they would welcome me in and put a plate down and they wouldn't even be like, oh, like, really? Like they would be like, yo, Chris is here. Here, let's, let's eat. And because like it'll add an experience of being around your family. So I'm with you, Dolores. I hope that to kind of tie together, like we all come to Italian-Americans with these marks that make us more Italian-American. And now it's our duty to continue reinforcing it with tradition. So, you know, keep it going. I urge everybody to, you know, keep it going and make sure you make those meatballs on Sunday. <laughs> I might, I might stop by That's if I'm in right. the area. 
Oh, God help you if both the Fasano brothers come over. Oh, man. You better, have a lot, you better have a lot of meatballs. Oh, so Dr. Chris Fasano, host of the Better Mental Health for Kids and Parents podcast. Thank you for being on the Italian American podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Now it's time for the Italian American story segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, or we try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or our own relatives or even something that a listener submitted. And I think one of the things that we all can remember talking about are our families, parents, grandparents talking about is saints and their feast days. And in today's segment, we feature Mallory Voudois, a Brooklyn-based spiritualist and author of the blog ItalianFolkMagic.com. And Mallory's been on the podcast previously with a very popular episode, and she's going to be speaking with Dolores about St. Lucy in the first of several segments on saints and their feast days. Here we go. Okay, now I'm excited to have with me Mallory Vaudois. She is author of ItalianFolkMagic.com and just a super interesting person that I always love speaking with. Hi, Mallory. How are you? Hi, Dolores. I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm hanging in there. I'm so excited to talk about this. We have had this idea for a little bit and we're finally kind of got our schedules coordinated. So this is our first episode in what will be a series. So we want to feature certain saints in the lead up to their actual feast days so that our listeners can, if they would like to, if they feel called to participate in the traditions and, you know, if there's recipes, right, and baking or just rituals that are done and, and, you know, just know kind of about these feast days that are coming up. We're going to start with Santa Lucia, St. Lucy, right? Yeah, Santa Lucia, whose feast day is coming up on December 13th. Perfect. Okay, so I was saying to Mallory off mic that I actually don't know too much about Santa Lucia myself. So I'm going to be a lot like probably most of our listeners. I'm going to ask questions from that angle. So why don't we begin by you telling us um, a bit about Santa Lucia in terms of what is she known for? Santa Lucia is probably one of the most popular saints in Italy, in Italian America, and in other parts of the world as well, particularly in the Nordic countries and in Mexico and Latin America. She's extremely popular. And I think some of the reason for that is due to her distinctive iconography or the way that she's depicted in statues and in art. So if you're walking through a Catholic church or, you know, some kind of outdoor shrine, you might notice a statue of a young girl carrying a palm frond. And the palm frond, when you see a saint carrying one of those, it means that that saint was martyred or killed for professing the faith. That is like so simple. I don't know how I didn't know that already. I've already yeah. learned something. We're two minutes in. Okay, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why, that's why you know, with Palm Sunday, we give out the palms. It's a symbol of martyrdom and, of course, victory, victory over death and the victory of the faith. So anytime you see that, that's what it means. She's also commonly depicted with a plate that has her own eyes on it. That's right. Yeah. And so if you, when you see that, you know, that St. Lucy, Santa Lucia. 
Yeah, you can't you can't miss her when you see um, eyes on a plate. I, I think of Santa Lucia as I must have read this somewhere because it's coming up in my mind as something that I, I've read, that that was kind of an image that horrified, you know, the Irish church when we first came here and started doing our own brand of worshiping. Right. I'm sure, you know, a lot of the images of the saints can be just a little bit on the, maybe on the creepy side, if we're right. being perfectly <laughs> honest. Um, you've got St. Bartholomew carrying his own flayed skin um, and Santa Lucia carrying eyes on a plate. So it can be, it's very visceral imagery is the thing. And it has to do with a lot with the body and it points to these stories, which are sometimes a little bit um, shocking and, and violent about the early history of our faith. Right, exactly. So you're saying um, that's how people can identify her in, in stories and in art. They'll know they're looking at St. Lucy. Exactly, exactly. That's how you'll know if it's a statue of St. Lucy, if there's no like plaque next to it, for example. And in most of the churches that I frequent, there usually isn't any plaque that says what the name of the saint is. You have to be able to identify them by sight. That's true. It's true. And I have gotten a little bit better at that, you know, because if you're if you're out sometimes um, and you stop into a you know Catholic store, sometimes they won't always have the listing of, you know, what saints which. And some of the, you know, like some of them, if they're like the, the men can look similar, you know, if they're just standing and they're holding certain things, you kind of have to know what you're looking at, what you're looking for. Yeah, sometimes the imagery is very subtle and it can change from different parts of the world to different parts of the world. But St. Lucy is very, for the most part, very consistent. Okay, so we, you and I talked about a few things we wanted to cover. And one of them was, you know, throughout this series, what your nonna might have said about Santa Lucia. Yeah. So if you ever had eye problems when you were growing up, like maybe you had bad eyesight or styes, or if anybody in your family was going in for eye surgery, your Nona probably told you to pray to St. Lucy or Santa Lucia for help with your eye health and with your eyesight. And this is because she's depicted with the eyes on the plate, but she's often also prayed to if there's a problem with the evil eye. And so if your Nona was savvy about things like that, she might have prayed to Santa Lucia if somebody in the family contracted malocchio or the evil eye. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, a lot of the um, prayers that are said in order to take off the evil eye are calling on St. Lucy. So uh, they might mention her by name. Oh, wow. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about who Santa Lucia was and a little bit about her life? Most of what we know about her life, I am getting from a book called The Golden Legend. For those of you who don't know, The Golden Legend is a collection of hagiographies or stories about the lives of the saints that was compiled by Jacobus de Varagine in the 13th century. And the Golden Legend was a smash hit in the late medieval period. So if you were alive in late medieval Europe your and your family only had one book, it was probably the Bible. But if they had two books, it was the Bible and a copy of the Golden Legend. And so what the Golden Legend tells us about Santa Lucia is that her name comes from the Latin word lux, which of course means light. And a lot of 
popular traditions in Italy and elsewhere in the world associate her with the winter solstice and with the rebirth of light in the dark night of winter. Um, and so Santa Lucia was just a young girl when she was martyred. Her father had died when she was very young and her mother was sick. So she brought her mother to the tomb of Santa Gata or St. Agatha to pray for healing. Um, and the early Christians, by the way, were all about hanging out in tombs. So you might hear a lot about that <laughs> if you if you start to study the history Listen, of our religion. We all do what we uh, have to do to cut loose. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you know how it is. Um, and so she brought her mother to the tomb of Santa Gata. And while she was there, she, uh, well, the golden legend tells us that she fell asleep. But what probably happened was she went into some kind of trance while she was praying. And there she had a vision of Santa Gata, who appeared to her covered in all of these precious stones and surrounded by angels and told her that her mother had been miraculously healed and they could go home knowing that she had been healed. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, Santa Lucia decides this is great. I'm so happy. My mother has been healed. I don't want to get married. I want to dedicate my life to Christ and I want to give away all of my riches and just live a life of poverty and humility and uh, faith. Unfortunately, that was a very dangerous time to make that type of a decision. Um, and in the early fourth century, Emperor Diocletian was persecuting Christians. And so she was brought before a judge who was persecuting her. And at this point, I'm looking through my notes and I'm remembering that the golden legend is actually pretty graphic. So we're going to skip over a couple of these parts. And if anybody is interested in learning more, you can get your own copy, but it might not be great bedtime reading for your children. So just be aware of that. But we're keeping it, we're uh, keeping it PG. We're going to keep it PG. Um, <laughs> But throughout these trials and tribulations that Santa Lucia was suffering, uh, she was constantly miraculously surviving them. They tried to light her on fire, but it doesn't harm her. And then eventually she is actually stabbed. And this is why if you ever go to Siracusa in Sicily, they have a very famous statue of her where she is depicted not with the plate with eyes, but actually with a sword at her throat. And while she's there, she gives prophecies about the end of Diocletian's rule and that, uh, you know, Christians would be freed. And she actually doesn't die, according to the golden legend, until a priest is able to come and give her uh, her last rites. She sounds intense. She's super intense. In every story about her, she's super intense. Interestingly, there's nothing about eyes in this story you might have noticed, but there is another story about her where there's basically a young man who is bothering her over and over again. And he's like, hey, baby, I really want you to be my wife. Please, will you be my wife? And so he's just bothering her over and over again. And she's saying no every time because she is dedicated to the faith. She doesn't want to get married. Um, and eventually he tells her, oh, but your eyes are so beautiful. And then in this particular legend, she says, well, if you like them so much, uh, she plucks them out and gives them to her, him. Wow. So is, is that why the eyes are on the plate? Because I was going to ask you about that. 
Yeah. So that is why the eyes are on the plate. There's a couple of different versions of that story. In other versions, it's actually a part of her martyrdom is her eyes are taken out from her as opposed to something that she takes out herself. I'm always interested in this because I'm not really sure uh, where it comes from, okay. uh, this this association between her and eyes, other than the fact that her name means light and she's associated with the light. And obviously you need light in order to be able to see. That's right. That would be Lucia. That's right. So so I'm I'm just thinking as you're talking about the eyes and the eyes on a plate and is there an association to her with, let's say, like vision or, or even clarity. So, you know, like seeing, I know there's the literal, like if you have literal eye problems, but what about in kind of a metaphysical, spiritual sense? Absolutely. And that's something that I pray to Santa Lucia for a lot, because obviously, you know, especially in these modern times, where we are constantly being bombarded with information and, you know, it's on our phones and on our laptops and on the TV. And like, there's all of this information, but you don't always know what's real and what's not real. I like to pray to Santa Lucia that I'll be able to kind of see through things that might be illusions or see through things when they are lies and be able to know how to act even when things are very confusing. I love that. I love that. And I think that that's a saint that every one of us could use in this day and age. I mean, I just thought of several areas in my life, in addition to what you just said, right? Like the the messages we're receiving and being bombarded with in different parts of my life where I could many times need somebody like that to call on. So that's great. Now I have a new saint that I can lean on. Oh, totally. And I'm glad that you're already seeing ways that, you know, you might be able to incorporate her into your prayer life in order to not just make your life easier, but to also be kind of a better person and to turn that around and use that to help other people. I mean, even in our personal relationships, I feel like we could call on her, you know, you're you're having a problem with somebody, a family member, or a relative, you know, a friend, you know, help me to see this situation clearly. Yeah, to see it clearly or on the other hand, to maybe even see it from their point of view better. Right. Perfect. Beautiful. Okay. So in in Italy, how did it celebrate her feast day? So as I mentioned before, Santa Lucia is popular throughout Italy. And the way that her feast day is celebrated will vary from region to region. So, for example, in Naples, people will light bonfires along the seafront leading up to the church of Santa Lucia Amare. And the fishermen will then go to church and thank her for keeping them safe when they're out on the water in the dark of winter. Up in northeastern Italy, um, including parts of Veneto and Lombardy, she actually is kind of like Santa Claus in that she'll come in the night of December 12th and bring gifts, usually small presents or sweets for the children. And so the children will actually set out milk or coffee for her and then biscuits and wine for her helper and maybe some flour or hay for the donkey that she rides while she's bringing out these gifts. Okay, I guess that makes sense that the regions would celebrate her 
differently. I mean, they do everything differently from one another. So, Oh, totally. <laughs> but the, the region where she's probably the most popular in is Sicily. And obviously she's the patron of Siracusa in Sicily. Um, so there's a, and she's from there in her hagiography that we discussed earlier that actually took place in Siracusa. But in 1646, there was a terrible famine and a ship full of wheat just miraculously appeared in the port of Palermo. The people were so hungry that they boiled and ate the wheat berries that were on the ship without grinding them up, which is how you usually make pasta or bread. And so this all happened on her feast day. So they credited her with saving them from the famine. And then here... In, in the States or wherever you are where you're listening, if you're not in Italy, in, you know, Syracuse, how can you celebrate Santa Lucia's feast day on December 13th? What, what are some of the things that we can do? Well, one thing that you can do if you, especially if you have some Sicilian ancestors that you want to honor is you can do what they do and abstain from anything made with wheat. So any kind of bread or any kind of pasta on her feast day. And instead you can make something called cuchilla. It's a traditional dish, which is inspired by that story where the people of Palermo went and took the wheat berries and they cooked them and ate them without grinding them down to make flour first. So there's a lot of different regional traditions for making cuchilla, but it's usually a sweet dish. It might resemble like a, like a soup or a pudding, or for Americans, it would probably look really similar to oatmeal. And if you're interested in making cuchilla for yourself and your family, you can find a recipe for it in our friend Rossella's latest book, which is called Cooking with Nona, A Year of Italian Holidays, 130 Classic Holiday Recipes from Italian Grandmothers. That's right. And we hope by now that every one of our listeners has gotten a copy of that book because, you know, this book covering holiday recipes in particular, it's so much what we're about, right, as Italian-Americans? Absolutely. And a lot of these recipes also help to tell the stories of our people, of the saints, of, uh, you know, different kind of historical events that are now traditions. Exactly. And so so many of our traditions, you know, holidays and these feast days, there's always some kind of food connected to it, right? There's some kind of baked good or dish or something that we make on that day or, you know, leading up to the day. Yeah, exactly. All right. Wonderful. Can we return to the evil eye? Of course. So. <laughs> there's always time to talk about the evil eye. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that you might want to do in order to uh, celebrate this feast day is you might want to get yourself a charm against the evil eye. And so there's actually a sea snail. The scientific name is Bulma rugosa. And this is called Occhio di Santa Lucia in Italian. And it's believed to protect against the evil eye. You can find uh, specimens on eBay if you search for Bulma rugosa. But there's also a lot of other types of charms against the evil eye that you might want to check out. From Italy, we have the manofico, which is the hand with the thumb between the two fingers, or the famous cornicello, which is the, um, the little horn. From other parts of the world, we have ojitos de Santa Lucia, 
which is very common in Latin America. And you might see those. Those are just two stylized eyes, so kind of perfect for St. Lucy. Um, or the Turkish Nazar, which looks like one big blue eye. Perfect. Wonderful. Mallory, I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it. The work that you do is such a gift to our community. I'm so excited to keep doing this series. So Amici, stay tuned for our next episode in this series. Mallory, thank you so much. And of course, we will link to everything that Mallory's mentioned in the show. But I really appreciate you being on the Italian American podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Dolores. It's been delightful. Okay, well, before we say goodbye, I want to read an iTunes review. We love these reviews. We are uh, one review away from hitting 100, which is very exciting. So uh, maybe if you go leave a review on iTunes, you will be you'll be the hundredth reviewer. So today I want to read one from Delessa611, a great five-star review, and her subject is favorite podcast. Truly my favorite podcast, not just because I'm Italian and love learning about my heritage, but because this cast of characters brings so many different angles to the many conversations of the show. They're educated, funny, and passionate, and that's a great combination. I'm always looking forward to the next episode. Thank you. That's wonderful to hear. I mean, yeah, that's, that's great. Just great feedback. We appreciate it. Keep the reviews coming, Paisani. We love to read them. They really help us know how you're taking the shows, and they also help us to get our shows out to more Italian Americans, which, of course, we all want. You can find us on social media. We are on Instagram, we are on Facebook, and we are on Twitter. And you can find us by just searching the Italian American Podcast. Arrivederci! Arrivederci!